Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Uh, hello and uh, welcome to the Fly Pass podcast. I'm James Poon and uh, today we're talking to Robert Forsyth about his latest book, Luftwaffe Special Weapons 1942-45. Uh, hello, Robert. Hello, good morning to you. You should be a name that's uh, familiar to a great many Flypass readers. You're an author, editor, publisher, and you've written over 30 books, including 25 for Osprey, I believe. And you've also written for various aviation magazines, such as Flypast and people like that. So you've clearly been around for some time. Uh, yes, I suppose I got involved in you know, getting interested in air- aircraft when I was a, probably like most of us already when I was a, when I was a kid. And back in, when was it? 1994, I actually sort of gave up the day job in favour of my interest, hobby, passion, obsession, call it what you will. And um, yeah, I started um, with a a good friend of mine, Eddie Creek. We started a a book publishing company called Classic Publications. And um, we just started uh, book publishing. I wanted to write my own book, um, which was an account of a Luftwaffe ME262 squadron commanded by Adolf Galland. And I'd done quite a lot of research for it. And I wanted to see the book produced in a certain way. And um, one night in a pub, <laughs> Eddie said to me, well, you know, why don't we have a go at publishing it ourselves? And I, I, you know, we didn't know anything about publishing. And I said, don't be silly, we can't do that. But to cut a long story short, we did. And um, I, I promised my wife that I'd go back to the day job at some time. <laughs> and, and here we are later, sort of, you know, 250 odd books later. Um, I haven't gone back to the day job. And it's, yeah, it's just been a sort of consuming passion and um, I love it. And um, yeah, I've written, I've, I've, I've sort of straddled both banks of the river because I, I write books, as you say, um, uh, it, the Luftwaffe is my is my abiding interest, and um, and I've also had the you know honour and and privilege and a huge amount of fun over the years producing other people's books and acting as an editor and a packager, and as I say, we've done two hundred and I think it's about two hundred and eighty odd books, and, and and you know we've done not just aircraft, we've 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 worked on um, books about classic motorsport and wildlife and. We've done everything from hedgehogs to um, you know you know children's books and all sorts of things. So um, it's it's been it's been great, and it's kind of I guess it is that thing that you know turning a, a hobby uh, an interest into a into a business. Um, you know you get good days and bad days, but it's it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, but that's it. I mean, if you enjoy what you do, it doesn't ever feel like work, does it? Not really. Um, there are days when I've got to be honest. You get down, you think, oh, I've got to read this and and or write this, and you think, oh, but. Then you remind yourself what you could be doing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're very, we're very, we're very lucky. I think, yeah, yeah. No, I, I always say that when I have a bad day, it's like I could be digging coal somewhere. You know, it's sitting in an office, you know, writing and reading about something you're into, like aeroplanes or you yes, know, it's, it's, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this this is your latest work. I think in your intro you say it's been sort of thirty years in the making. Has this been like a, a labour of love? This one's getting everything together various sources yes it, it has and um the, the reason is as i mentioned a minute ago many many years ago um as i said i i came into this as a boy and and you know i you know it goes back to biggles and all the rest of it but but um as my interest matured i was very interested in the notion of jet engine technology early jet engine technology 
And I was very intrigued by the the, the Meshes ME262. Um, and so I ended up contacting um, some former German pilots. And the first book I wrote was about this unit called Jagdverband 44, which was the um, unit which Adolf Galland commanded and flew down in southern Germany towards the end of the war. But at the same time, there was another interest that I had, which was in, I, I don't know why, and it's a peculiar interest, but I was very interested in the technology of weapons development and weapons design and uh, how the Germans did that and went about it from about 43 onwards. And they came up with some very intriguing and very advanced and, and very you know technologically advanced designs. And it was something that you know, I just sort of collected material on over the years, and I was hugely lucky. And and you may have read this in the introduction to the book. I was hugely lucky to come across some documents, and this was back in uh, the early nineties um, at the Imperial War Museum. And a gentleman there at the time, who was the curator of documents at the Imperial War Museum, a gentleman called Phil Reed, immensely helpful. And he, we, we sort of came across together this collection of documents, which was prepared by uh, Fort Halstead here in, in, in Kent, in England, which was basically a weapons, a government weapons evaluation and assessment centre. And they had interrogated former German prisoners of war, um, civilians in the main, technicians and ballistics engineers and weapons specialists at Rheinmetall Borsig, which was the main German uh, one of the major German arms manufacturers. And these reports were like gold dust because they contained the ballistics angle and the design angle on many of these rather intriguing German airborne weapon systems. So they were basically translations of um, interrogations and reports written by these guys. And it bought the other half of the kind of Apple together so that I was able to have the, the the pilots and the air crew's perspective as well as the perspective of design and development and from the engineering side. So that was a great find. But then the thing, you know, life got in the way and I, you know, as I explained it a couple of minutes ago, we, we set up a business and I got involved in, in, in helping other people, you know, edit and publish their books and and, and whatever. And it, and it kind of is one of those things that got put on the back burner. So I didn't do anything with it for about 30 years. And I mean, I, I, you know, I collected material in the, in, in the interim and got reports. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, met people on the way who were amazingly helpful and generous and, and very kind. And I interviewed a few other people and, um, and it all came together. But, and then one day I was having a conversation with um, Tony Holmes at Osprey and he said, well, have you got anything you'd like to, you know, standalone projects? And this was it. And what you, you know, that, that was it. That was the, that's the book. <laughs> it's kind of like your Tolkien-esque epic. It's been sort of on the back yes. burner for all these years. Yes. And it was great. And it was lovely going back to look at all this stuff that I'd found so long ago and actually making use of it. It was almost like a sort of, I don't know, a kind of recycling process. It was great. It was really good. It was really good. The thing as well is, is like when you started this, it was, it's pre-internet days, isn't it? That's that's the thing. So you you weren't just going online and typing in someone's name or something. It, it was like you yeah. have to trawl an archive somewhere and get access yes. to that archive. Yes, um, the Imperial War Museum. I, I don't know if you've ever, you know, there's a it's got that big dome in London at Lambeth, 
and they mm. had something called the reading room. I'm not sure if it's still there because I know they've been doing a lot of work there, but they had this thing called the reading room and off the reading room was this little room where there were all these microfilm machines. And Phil used to let me just go in there and he would bring up boxes from the basement and there'd be either dusty files or microfilms. And I'd just be left alone for hours on my own going through this stuff. And occasionally Phil would pop in and he'd help me, you know, bless him, translate things. And and I also belonged to a group, an ad hoc group of enthusiasts at the, at the time. And we all helped each other. And um, But yes, it was the age of putting a letter in the post and or we had the fax machine, you know, that, yeah. that really sped things up. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you, and I, you know, I went to Germany and, and met a few pilots, particularly one pilot who was a man called Horst Geier, who was the commanding officer of the Erprobungskommando 25, which was the major Luftwaffe airborne weapons testing unit. And I, I met him at his home near Hamburg, and he was a very cooperative guy. So, yeah. Yes, you had to get on planes and fly places and and send letters to people, and that meant you had to wait and and for a reply, and you know you wondered if you get a reply, and and um, there were also things like the, the there was the Gemeinschaft Jagdflieger, which was a um, a sort of association of former German pilots, and they were very helpful, and um, but gradually the whole it was kind of building blocks, you know, like like any book is, I guess it was kind of just building the wall, and it comes slowly comes together. Um, I mean, did anyone sort of come out of the woodwork who you weren't expecting to find? Because I suppose a lot of this generation didn't want to talk about the war until, you know, time has progressed. Um, there was one gentleman. Uh, by and large, I've, I've, in the course of all my books, I've, I've travelled to Germany and corresponded with, met several, quite a, quite a lot of German, former German Luftwaffe pilots. And I have to say, with the exception of one incident, they have all been very forthcoming. You know, they, they check you out. You know, they they wanted to make sure that you weren't some sort of you know neo Nazi nutter or something. But they check they check you out and and um, but 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 they were very very cooperative. Um, most of them wanted to tell their story and had have the opportunity to, you know, I think they were intrigued. It was in, an Englishman. Yeah, I I won't mention his name, but there was one former um, um, pilot who, you know, he he'd actually been awarded the Knight's Cross by. And decorated personally by by Hitler, who 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 I met, and um, I went a long way to see him, and um, that was difficult for him. And he he in the end he said, I, I can't talk about this, and and you know we shook hands, and and we actually corresponded thereafter. But um, that was the only one. Um, they 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 they've all in out for all my books and my research. I found them very cooperative, very very friendly, and very obliging. Yeah, I mean, and that's the, the beauty of a book like this is that it does tell these people's stories, isn't it? I mean, if, yes. if you don't do it, then they're gone forever. Exactly. And and I think that's a thing that I think you've hit the nail on the head there, James, because um, and I've had this conversation with a, with a colleague of mine just recently that I, I think from now we've lost that virtually, sadly, we've lost that, that, that opportunity. I think the next generation of, of historians and researchers is not going to have that advantage that privilege, whatever you want to call it, they are going to have to rely on secondary sources. You know, one day someone might rely on my book to quote, or somebody else's book to quote some, an account, but they're going to have to rely solely on the surviving documentary record. And that will mean that they won't, you know, you can't call upon that I was there, first person singular kind of contribution. I don't necessarily think that takes away any validity. 
but I think it does restrict a researcher and a writer in scope. Yes. Yeah. And, and you know as well as I do, it's like when you're talking to somebody about any subject, you can just mention something and it takes you down a completely different avenue that you never expected to go down. Yes. Yes. I. I. I you. <laughs> you have to rein yourself in sometimes. You know. You. You, you have to. Um, you have to say, oh, I'm not going down there. And and sometimes, it, you know, you do, and inevitably you go, oh, this is fantastic, and you find something else. That you, or you get, you end up going down a blind alley, and you've wasted sort of two weeks trying to find something that, you, you know, you wish you, you, you hadn't really gone looking for. But um, that's part of the fun of research, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things you just said there a second there ago was about how, as an Englishman, being interested in the Luftwaffe, it's, it's not unique, but it is slightly more unusual, I suppose, because for myself, I'm really into the Battle of Britain. And yeah. that, that's kind of my thing because it's on home territory. And I tend to sort of read a lot about those pilots. So reading it from the perspective of the Luftwaffe, it kind of put a different angle on it for me. Because I've read a lot of stuff about sort of the American bomber crews and stuff. But then actually to think about the Luftwaffe pilots, every day for them was the Battle of Britain. They were fighting, defending the home territory, weren't they? That's, that's not an angle I've thought about it before, yes. really. I mean, I mean, there are... There are um... <laughs> I read a while, several years ago an interesting perspective on the Battle of Britain. In fact, one of the pilots I met said the same thing to me. He said, um, it may have been a battle, of, and, and it and it's, it wasn't said in any with any kind of, um, I don't know what word it is, not malice, or, or it, it was just that he's, the comment was made to me that, well, it may have been a Battle of Britain for you, but it was merely a campaign for us, i.e., you know, there was going to yeah. be a means to an end and we were going to, conquer britain and uh, and the rest of it but i got you know as i said a little while a moment ago i i got into this through two things first it was the jet engine technology that got me interested but i suppose going further back apart from being interested in louis blerio in his, his, his flight across the channel which really intrigued me when i was a kid i remember going in at school going into this we had this sort of modeling shack this modeling hut i remember this going in and like you you know i had the spitfire and the mosquito and one kid had an, uh, I think it was an Airfix 172nd 109E. And um, I thought this looked quite business like. You know, I held it up compared to the Spit, and the Spitfire was graceful and elegant. And the Messerschmitt 109 was very sort of business like and very, it, they, they had almost two different, you know, two different characters, you know. And um, what intrigued me was the notion of the Dame of the Bents and, and, you know, fuel injection. And, and that really thought, that's smart, that's clever, you know, that you can. And so I just went away and through no sort of, I mean, like all kids, I'd watch the sort of war films and the documentaries and had the war comics. But I, I think it was just the technology that the Germans put in their aircraft and their designs. And that just got me interested. And I just found I was, I bought a book year, years and years ago called Warplanes of the Third Reich by William Green, which is a huge tome of a book. I still have it. And the photographs, stuffed with the photographs. and. Um, the designs of these things really intrigued me. And, and, and I, I don't know, I just got organically, I just got interested in it. And, um, and then I, I broke away for a few years because I got interested in other things. But uh, I came back to it and, and it's just been a love. As I said, I, it's, it's been an interest I've had all my life. Um, See, I can remember going to a model shop in Leicester when I was, when I was a kid. And I was, it was Domino's and downstairs was all Airfix. And they used to have obviously like the professionally made stuff that you could aspire to build. And they had a, a missile. You know the yes. um, the bomb with the fight on top, and yeah, I'd never seen anything yeah. like that, and, and I just yeah. couldn't work out like is, is someone just glued those together. And it was only yeah. like when you went away and looked into it, and actually from there I kind of got into sort of the whole the 
the craziness of the Luftwaffe. I think, as you, as you say, if somebody had an idea, they didn't dismiss it. They tried right. it first, yes. and then they went for it. Yes. And, and you know, James, the other interesting thing is that in, in recent years, the thing that intrigues me more than anything else is that, you know, from 1943 onwards, when the factories were being bombed, you know, the Allied strategic air offensive was really, to put it crudely, plastering Germany and the Third Reich as it was. And, you know, so their factories are being bombed. The transportation system was, was, was you know, being wrecked. Um, you know, they... It, and and the more that that happened, the more that that they faced, you know, and America came into the war, and the more that adversity that was there for the Germans, the more this technology and this design and this, you know, it it, it came. It just, or rather, it didn't stop. If anything, it intensified. And it, you know, indeed, from forty two, forty three onwards, the quality. Um, not the quality so much, but the the aspiration and 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 the intent and the ambition in their designs seems to escalate even more in, in what became a two and a half year period, three year period at the most. I mean, yeah. some of the most amazing weaponry. Um, I mean, I mean, I'm not saying it was um, necessarily good tactically, or but some of the most amazing designs came out in that period when they were facing their their grimmest period of the war um you know after stalingrad after after schweinfurt and after all the ball bearing and you know factories have been bombed and, and it, it, it's, it's it's extraordinary well so they say necessity is the mother of invention isn't it and i suppose they had absolutely. a big need to shoot down bombers at that point yes yes absolutely um and uh they were very um you're right i mean the the host Geier, uh told me uh, and again i mentioned the book that Nothing was, I, I mean, I'm sure they got some real crazy stuff and they probably thought, what the heck is this? But um, as I mentioned in the book, I mean, nothing was turned away. No, everything, and I suppose necessity is the mother of I mean, you are under such pressure that you you will consider anything. And they did, you know, even up to, you know, launching artificially created gusts of air. To, to try and destabilize bomber formations. I mean, it's easy now to look. I mean, when I was writing the book, I thought, this is crazy. I even managed to get, a, again, from this collection of documents at the Imperial War Museum, I actually got a drawing of this thing. So it proves that it wasn't me just making it up. It, 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 was, it, it was there. And, and, you, and, and, and your first thought, you said, this is, this is mad. This is bonkers. But actually, put yourself back, you know, 1944, 1943, and your your streets are being bombed, and your houses are being you know anything to stop it. And I think yeah. that's what they did. That's what. They did. And you, you've got to take your hats off to the the Luftwaffe pilots who were actually tasked with doing this. Because I think your opening um, chapter, you just, you just mentioned um, there's a combat report of I think B 17s where someone's flying a cable yes. through the bomber formation. Yes. I mean, it's like that's not only dangerous for the, the B seventeen you're trying to shoot down, yes. but also the pilot flying that cable through. That's yes, it. yes, yes, and that almost goes back to um, to North Africa in uh, 1942, I think it was, when there was a, a pilot, um, a, a 109 pilot. You know, he he was dragging something from his 109 and also throwing hand grenades out of his 109. Almost going back to First World War experiments. Um, but yes, I mean, at Probung's Commando 25, they looked at steel cables. 
with weights on the end. Uh, they considered steel nets to drop over engines, but that didn't happen, whereas the cables were. And, and, and again, in the book, I was able to find, you know, while I was researching for the book, I was able to find the reports prepared by the Germans, by Probungskommando 25, as well as getting the US 8th Air Force post-mission reports, which said, you know, we were flying along and suddenly we saw these things being dragged through our formation. And often when the US crews, air crews, when the B-17, B-24 crews got back home to England, you read American reports and between the lines, they were doubted. Their intelligence officers often doubted the crews when they came back. You know, there was kind of, well, you know, you, you know, perhaps you've seen one too many, you know, you, this, isn't, this isn't right, you know, just, just, yes, we'll listen to that and move along sort of thing. Well, actual fact, it was real. It was happening. And um, it was particularly crews bombing the ports of Bremen, Wilhelmshaven, crews going as far as Lübeck on the north, on the Baltic coast of Germany, because uh, Brugman's Commander 25 was based at Wittmannhaven and up on the north coast. So that's where this stuff was happening. Spray into engines, spray onto bomber wing screens, air-to-air bombing. That actually progressed from a trials unit into one squadron of JG-1, where they were dropping 50-kilo bombs onto, trying trying to drop 50-kilo bombs onto Allied bomber formations. It wasn't always about trying to necessarily, one aircraft trying to shoot one bomber down in the conventional sense of an attack by a fighter against a bomber, because of the concentrated defensive firepower of a B-17 or a B-24 formation, you think these things are bristling with 50 caliber guns, chin turrets, you know, waist guns, top turrets, all the rest. The main thing that Germans had to do was to try and disperse the formation, to try and break up that firepower. And they they didn't, it wasn't a question of realizing, they they began to think, well, you know, to get our fighters close to the bombers, to get one fighter close to a bomber is a very dangerous, hard-to-do thing. So if we can scatter that formation and break down the defensive firepower, it's then much easier for a fighter to make a conventional approach. So a lot of this was about breaking down formations and breaking down that defensive firepower. And one of the earliest weapons was the underwing 21-centimeter mortar, which was converted a, a converted army weapon. It was a it was a it was a mortar, and somebody had the idea to to fix two of these under the wings of a fighter. And when you had a Messerschmitt Bf 110 twin engine one ten or Me four ten, sometimes to put two of these big tubes under the wing, and they, they're, they're big, and and um, and they were spin stabilized, not very accurate. But accuracy wasn't necessarily the aim it was to this thing would blow up in the middle of a formation and scatter the formation and break its firepower down leaving each individual bomber much more vulnerable to attack by a fighter or fighters so yeah one of the things you mentioned in the book as well i hadn't realized was the schrager music actually originated in the first world war someone came up with that idea and then it was forgotten about and yeah. that was an incredibly effective weapon against the bomber. Yes, that was. It was. Um, um, I, won't, I won't say it was designed. It was, um, but it, yes, it does go back to the First World War to um, the designer of the Fiesler Storch, no less, um, Gerhard Fiesler. He, he was a pilot in somewhere in the, one of the southeastern battlefronts, and um, he realised that if he fixed angled guns into his aircraft, he could 
go under an, an enemy aircraft, and it, and it were. In fact, I think it cap- they were captured guns. And um, yes, the Germans then, I think the idea was put on quietly on the back burner of the 30s, but it, during the 30s, but it re-emerged, and it was used as a very effective night fighter weapon. And yes, two, sometimes four guns um, set at a 45-degree angle, um, perpendicular oblique angle, because the, the rationale behind it was that a bomber's the largest target is if you approach a bomber from underneath. And if you've got the light conditions are correct, you'll shoot down a bomber. And But many Luftwaffe, actually, at the end of the day, um, it was a relatively small number of Luftwaffe pilots that, that wanted to do it and that became proficient at it. But those that did, did shoot down quite a lot of bombers. A lot of Luftwaffe pilots preferred, for whatever reason, to, to, to attack conventionally. When you read the accounts of the Lancaster crews and Halifax crews who astonishingly so because because when these weapons and they were 20 millimeter weapons when these weapons fired under a bomber sometimes with a bomb still on board uh, i mean you, this thing either the airplane just exploded or they were literally shredded and you know fuel tanks and wings could lit, and you were flying a very dangerous dangerously dis- damaged aircraft and when you read the accounts of RAF bomber command air crew that were hit by these things that you know there was no warning you know you just suddenly rat tat tat this the, you know these bullets would shred through the underneath of your aircraft and it, it was horrific and uh they said it was almost the worst thing worse than flak or, or anything else to be hit by Schrager music yeah. and just the suddenness of it as well the unexpected in the flying along in the dark and suddenly Absolutely. you're yeah decimated yes yes, yes. it's things like that that makes you kind of think that if the Germans had concentrated on just a handful of these weapons and developed them, would they have been a bit more successful? I think so. And and possibly, again, it's this thing about it all came, <laughs> it's too little, too late, perhaps thankfully. Um, but certainly when the Germans started to introduce the jets, the ME-262, the Arado-234, the rocket fighters as well, you know, the ME-163, by that stage of the war, so we're talking really mid-June 44 onwards, they were also simultaneously introducing 55mm R4M rockets. And, you know, that was advanced technology. Um, So a 262 would um, have batteries of 12 55mm rockets under each wing. And, you know, that meant they could fire from further out um, from an aircraft that was traveling incredibly quickly. So it meant the escort, the job of the escort fighter became for the bombers became much harder because you know even a p51 could struggle to keep up with a 262 so the 262's inherent advantage was its speed but then it it could be armed with these rockets and the speed of a rocket and a battery of 12 of these things going into an into an enemy formation again not necessarily accurate but if you're firing if, if each 262 is firing 12 of those rockets into a b17 formation Something's going to hit somewhere along along the line. And again, I I, I corresponded a few years ago with a, a B twenty six pilot, and th- they were flying tactical missions, l- relatively low level tactical missions in southern Germany. Towards the end of the war, they were literally finishing th- finishing the job really. So they were bombing transport hubs, railway junctions, and this kind of thing. So fairly low twin engine B twenty six Marauders, and these two six twos from JV-44 based at Munich Rehm would come up and they would be armed with R4Ms. And on one occasion, 
they and again these guys told their air crew that their intelligence officers sorry they told their intelligence officers look we're flying against aircraft that don't have propellers and they're moving like bats out of hell and the astonishingly the US air force intelligence almost said nah you know no 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 then they started firing rockets and there was still doubt on the part of their it must have been can you imagine getting back home and being an air crew and trying to tell your intelligence officers what you've seen and they're saying nah, no 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 you, you you see you you need a rest son you know and this was going on and this one particular chap was a pilot of a B26 Marauder and an R4M rocket literally went through the fuselage of the Marauder from the front nose through the Marauder through the bomb bay and out one side of the Marauder and it took his it took his I think it took his leg and part of an arm off as well. And he survived and got back. And it was only when that was starting to happen that the American intelligence guys started to think, yeah, you know, this is a real threat. But the point is, is that 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 weaponry started to come in at the very, if they concentrated on that kind of weaponry, on those kind of aeroplanes, and it had it been a little bit earlier, and it's always if, and if's a big word, had it been yeah. a bit earlier, then yeah, maybe things would have been a little bit different. Um, I really hate to leave it there because it's actually a really, really interesting uh, conversation we're having here. And there's so much more we could talk about from your book. Um, but we're sadly, we're out of our time. Um, so where can our readers find your book? Where, where can they buy it uh, from? It's published by Osprey Publishing. Um, it can be uh, purchased, I believe, from the publisher's website, Osprey Publishing's website, or it's at Amazon and hopefully all good bookstores. <laughs> Well, I totally recommend it. I haven't personally read it, and I think it's brilliant. And, uh, yeah, anyone else wants to learn more about Luftwaffe secret weapons, they know where to go. Uh, But thank you very much, Robert. Thanks for joining us. All right, pleasure. Thanks very much, James. Cheerio. Thank you. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.